SaaS Insiders. I welcome you to another episode of our show. Today I'm talking to Matt Lowe. He's a founder of Chipbot. He's got amazing story with his previous startups and how he got into his current one. But what you will find useful is what we discuss in terms of building your minimum viable product, what is enough, what is just enough to make it work, and how to get the early traction with this. Just check out this short clip to get a taste of our talk today. You really should look at it from a market perspective first, not building. The, one of the biggest mistakes I see in the market is build it, then market it. Don't do that. It's much easier to build an audience first and test your ideas just with content. These days, it's very easy to test on TikTok, very easy to test on Instagram shorts or YouTube shorts and Instagram reels. Just build an audience and play around with that. And as always, we're going much deeper during the actual conversation into those topics. So I recommend listening to the full episode to get the most value right after this brief sponsorship segment. This episode is sponsored by the SaaS Insiders Studio. We help SaaS founders build their minimum viable products, MVPs, launch quickly, find a product market fit, and grow from there. SaaS Insider Studio works with non-technical founders that are on the pre-seed or seed stage to help them execute on their product vision. To learn more, go to my LinkedIn profile that you can find in the description to this episode and shoot me a direct message there. All right, let's jump straight into today's episode. Expectations of an MVP. I think the, the vision that you're trying to do needs to be captured within the MVP. It's the best way I can explain it. It has nothing to do necessarily with amount of features or amount of depth that you have. That combination determines is your vision coming across with your end product. A lot of folks try to go really, really simple, right? Do one thing, one thing only. But if your vision isn't getting across, then are you different enough where you can make money off that? And that's, that's if you aren't, I don't think you're an MVP. I a founder of a company called Chipbot. We do all-in-one video, live chat, and FAQ service for websites. And I've been working on this for about four years. I guess for your audience, we it took us maybe a year to hit product market fit, but eventually we got through it. And uh, so that's what we're working on right now. Prior to that, I did four other startups ranging from real, a real estate renter app, a front-end education site, and a few other service-based companies. Some of them worked, some of them didn't, but today I only focus full-time on Chipbot. Talk, talk a little bit about the Chipbot. What is this solution? Who is this for? And what kind of problems exactly it's solving? Yeah, so Chipbot is for small businesses, typically ranging from pre-sales, so zero revenue, all the way up to a million, million dollars in revenue. We have a few customers kind of in the 10 and one customer, which is crazy. He's in a hundred million, but those are kind of outliers. We typically serve small, medium-sized businesses. And our differentiator is we focus more on videos. So it's really hard to make a website work. It's so many times one of the first things that comes for a business owner that comes to mind is like, is my website looking good? Do I need to redesign it? I have all these traffic. Everyone's bouncing. What do I do with it? And they don't really know if it's really going to work or not. And they have to depend on web developers, agencies, and, and their own self-education to know what to do. What's SEO optimized? Is this actually getting me sales or not? So we're in the space of, we focus on how do we get 
a sale as fast as possible on your website, regardless of what it looks, regardless of what it says. That way there's no focus on clarity or having too much information. And we thought, well, this was back in 2019 and 2020. We thought, well, maybe if you just went on video, kind of like a TikTok style format, people would listen to you. We saw TikTok and Instagram, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts take off. We figured, what if we just did the same thing on a website? And we showed that to the world. We combined it with our prior with our prior tech and then combined it with live chat. And we saw, huh, a lot of people like this idea. And not only that, when they liked the idea, some of them had conversions, more conversions than before. Some of them double. And we were like, okay, we have something here. And then we just kept scaling and scaling that. So today, ChipBot is this way of just uploading a quick 15 second authentic video, just like how we are on Zoom right now and upload it and just do your sales pitch to your audience. And then we link a live chat button and your audience or customers can chat with you right away and you immediately beat a competitor. Like imagine if you're, this happens all the time. Say you're hiring a landscaping company to do your, to do your lawn. Well, you look up a few different companies. Well, the one, all of them kind of look the same. They have a phone number, why they're good, all testimonials. What's the difference? All right, they have the same rates too. Well, the one with the video, the one who is saying like, hey, thanks for, you know, Acme Co, landscaping service. Thanks for reaching out. The person who does that on video for 15 seconds saying, hey, book a call with me is going to beat the website that has no personality on it. And that is our value proposition to the world. And we do a really good job on it. It doesn't slow down your website. We integrate all these features so you don't have to add five other plugins to make this one plugin work with your ecosystem. We just put everything into one tool, super fast, and we update it all the time with new feature requests and business has been booming because of it. That's really smart. One thing you mentioned is you spend about a year finding a product market fit. Could you, could you share a bit more on that? Like, how did that happen? What was in the beginning and basically how you, how you realized the pivot that you need to make to find that? Yeah. So when we first started the company, I always knew like, cause I come from a website background. Mm-hmm. I used to do, I used to build websites for like 10 years. So I have that software engineering experience. When I was doing startups, one of the biggest problems was support. So when I came up with ChipBot, it came from that mindset of like, okay, my next company I want to do, it's going to be website focus. So it takes, takes from my expertise. It's not going to do something I maybe don't know. And it needs to solve at least what some of the pains I was having in my last startup, which was support. It was like really hard to manage support across like all these different channels, at least the team. I wasn't doing support, but my co-founder and, and his, his, his subordinates were doing it. And it was taking a lot of time. So I made a new company called ChipBot that focused more on support. Didn't have video yet. It was more like an FAQ bot almost. And when we launched it, I did a big splash, went to a convention, did, or not convention, we did a kind of like a, like a Q&A panel with a bunch of other founders. And we just launched it. We had like a 60, 60 person audience, like right from the get-go and was able to get my first 10 customers literally that day. Not all of them paid that same day, but they, you know, they were leads and eventually paid. And wherever we launched, it's like, great, we got this bump. I thought, okay, we got the first 10, we get 20, we get 30, get to 40. I had this kind of, you know, everyone does it. So put the spreadsheet, just literally drag the little bottom right cursor and drag out the model. And hopefully it follows the linear path. I did that. And everyone knows what realistically happens is you hit that bump in the beginning. For us, it was that event. For others, it might be a product hunt launch. And then you immediately fall right back down. And then for some folks, you fall below zero and you're actually, your churn is hitting. You're not getting, you're not getting any customers and you start really deciding whether this thing is going to work or not. We stayed at that level for legitimately one year. So that means whatever bump we got 
and residual hits we got, it didn't really ever hit that level for at least one year. We, we tried different marketing tactics. We did everything, read the book Traction, followed everything there. Nothing really worked. And I was like, you know what? Maybe it's a product at this point. We thought just because we got 10, 20 customers, we thought like maybe that was uh, we hit product market fit. No, product market fit in my definition is once you get minimum 100 customers, because 100 customers gives you enough depth to see is your product sticky enough and can you market it, right? Just because I have a nice tool that you can use and it does solve your use case doesn't necessarily mean it's product market fit. You also need to be able to market that that company. So part of product market fit is the ability to, to actually market and get some type of revenue in return. Um, for us, that was actually not even that first year. It was actually two years later. And I would say the traditional, what maybe outside that definition, a lot of people think like MVP is get that or product market fit is like, maybe you get a fraction of a hundred of those customers. And that's what your, yes, what's your, that's what your market fit. Or when you see that hockey stick, maybe that's your product market fit for us. Like even like what, what I thought back then was it actually took really took two years, not even one year. That first year was, we just got a small bump in customers, but it wasn't until two, yeah, two years ago, I got my first hundred customers. That's when we really saw it. And that journey was pain. It was, it was very painful. Well, you know, when you tell me about one year of fighting to, to find that, find that angle to go with, a lot of times founders launch it, make a splash. Like you said, they try for two weeks. It doesn't work. It doesn't work <laughs> next. It's like, well, it doesn't work. I didn't get it. I didn't validate my MVP, you know? So it tells me about determination and how sometimes you need to push. Like you're, you're so close to figuring this out, but you just most founders just like, no, it's, it's not worth it. What's your take on this in terms of like, how did you know that you will find a way? Like, was it like, did you just truly believe in the idea? Was it something else? What motivated you to basically go with it for one year trying to figure out when nothing worked? Well, I didn't know. I didn't, I don't know, you know, if I would subscribe on, on that kind of one to two year journey. It was more or less that I have a very contrarian based view on investments and decision making. I just see everyone making, as you said, like a startup every week, every month, startup every quarter, startup every year, and they're not going anywhere. And it's like, is it really the volume that wins? Or is it the quality, the ability to pivot within within your means that wins? I don't not sure if there's a really a clear answer. I think that's why I like business. You can kind of make you can kind of make all of those paths work, but they really determine on your own skill set. So, for example, maybe in my 20s, making a startup every month is kind of okay. And once I find any inkling of performance, then like okay, go ham and go all in in that. Maybe that's okay. And I don't have the energy as I did 10 years ago. So I need to make best with what I can with what I know. And I think part of it too, is I come from a website background. I know these tools work. I know the audiences, I know all of it. So it's the matter of make the tool find its way to the right product market fit, because I know enough information to make it work much harder. If you don't know your market. Probably, probably that's it. Because my question was basically what kept you wake up every day and saying like, I will figure this out. I believe it will work out. I just need to basically try different, different approach because a lot yeah. of times, a lot of times you wake up, sometimes you think like, maybe it's not going to work because I've tried, I've been trying for so long. So that's, that's the question. Basically, how do you find that within you? Like what, what motivated you? So others can, it's, it's an up and down. It's an up and down emotion. Like everyone who's going to listen to this is going to understand the depth of the, the emotion. It's funny because when you're there, you don't remember as much all the good times, but it's really a roller coaster. It's really just a roller coaster of emotions. 
there's no way around it. There's no, everyone has different mechanics on how to cope against it. But honestly, after you hit hundred customers, you never have to worry about that again. And I hate to say that because it's like, that's a big goal for a lot of folks to reach, but there is nothing you can do about that roller coaster of emotion until you see the hockey stick. And the hockey stick doesn't have to be revenue driven. It doesn't even have to be customer driven. You just got to find a hockey stick somewhere in your data that you can stick and work to it, right? Not everything's about money. And I think that's a very important thing when you're in this zero to one phase or one to 10 phase is you got to find something that your community, your, your ecosystem can start believing in. The money will come. I have always found that to be true. It's like when I started, when I first started Chipbot, I knew I always wanted to help websites, but because it wasn't a strong mission, it also was hard to gather energy to keep pivoting because I'm always looking at revenue. It's like, my revenue's not moving anywhere. Well, well you know, revenue is just, I just started thinking revenue is an indicator. It's just like a, it's like a metric. It's not even a, it's not, it's not money. And once I started thinking like that, it's like, well, what am I, what I want to do? Well, the mission is help every business owner in the world, help every business in the U.S., help every business in Texas, do it through Chipbot. And once you have that mission, then your hockey stick growth, you can look at somewhere else. You can be like, how many installs did I get this month? How many people end users interacted with Chipbot? Did anything grow? And once you find something that grows, boom, you stick with it and you just say, that's one of, that's the metric I'm going to work with for three, six months. Once you do that, your whole mindset changes and you don't really think about revenue as much. You think about whatever is motivating you, whatever the metric that motivates you the most. I think that matters. And that's where the energy just comes out of nowhere. You'll still get depressed because you still look back at revenue, but it's okay because the energy comes back when you look at the other metrics. Dustin Cyrus, I want you to pick this up because all the founders are experiencing roller coaster of emotions, especially in the beginning. Like it, it just you cannot avoid it. But for for a lot of people, when they listen about it, like in in the YouTube or in the podcast, like oh yeah, yeah, that's sure everyone does it. But once you actually get into that, it's like oh my god, like my my problem is unique, you know, like it's hell on earth and it's happening to me. God, why? I don't know, you know. It's just you suddenly forget about those things when you're in it, uh, and it's really hard to. To really understand that that's pretty pretty normal what all the people want for this who, who got some traction so for those who are listening this is this is so normal we talk about this with almost every guest like everyone went through it it's it's so classic speaking matt of getting started when you've got this idea for chipbot the initial idea how did you go about building your mvp so from idea in your mind to some product on the market what was the link to that like how much time it took, what's the approach, and what would be the advice when you're approaching the MVP? Because MVP is, it should be a really objective term, but people nowadays tend to give it subjective opinions of what the MVP <laughs> is. So I wanted to know what's your take on this. So the first part, like length, it only took me a month to launch. It was half on dash, like basically half the time was on dashboard and half the other time was on the product. And then connecting them to two, launch within a month expectations of an MVP, I think the, the vision that you're trying to do needs to be captured within the MVP. It's the best way I can explain it. It has nothing to do necessarily with amount of features or amount of depth that you have. That combination determines is your vision coming across with your end product. A lot of folks try to go really, really simple, right? Do one thing, one thing only. But if your vision isn't getting across, then are you different enough where you can make money off that? And that's, that's, if you aren't, I don't think you're an MVP. Or in the other, another, another situation is when you launch, we'll say it's not, say it's not revenue driven, right? Not all products at first need to be monetized. 
that means you're focused about users. Well, are the features enough, different enough for your users to stick so your monthly active user rate can grow? If it doesn't, it's not quite an MVP. You might label it internally as MVP because you launched, you did a product hunt launch, you announced on Twitter, but if users aren't sticking, you you just haven't it you just you're not there yet. MVP is my opinion, right? You could some folks say minimal viable product, minimal valuable product, whatever you want. The minimal piece is very important. Minimal doesn't mean minimally launched. It means minimally, in my eyes, viable, which means users are sticking around. So if you launch and users aren't sticking, you're not MVP yet. You need to iterate a few more times where users can stick or pivot where you need to go. Then you're MVP. I think that's a distinction that, that or a differentiation I have. I think a lot of times people focus on only two, two letters of the MVP. So it's either minimum product, meaning it's not viable, or it's viable product, meaning it's far from being minimum. <laughs> like yeah, you, you, really, you really need everything. Yeah, because people sometimes either build those like elephants and trying to like, why, why is it taking six months with like two years to build it? Or they're building something like without actually having this vision, solving the core problem. Well, I guess my MVP is not working. And I know one last one last thing you were mentioning. Uh, there was one part of your last question, which was, could you repeat that one part of the last question you had? Yeah, but basically, what kind of advice do you have for founders who are looking to build their MVP? What what kind of lens you're looking through when you're trying to assess what right, your MVP right. should look like? How to build it? Right. All right, and then how I would do it differently. Okay, you really should look at it from a market perspective first, not building. The one of the biggest mistakes I see in the market is. Build it, then market it. Don't do that. It's much easier to build an audience first and test your ideas just with content. These days, it's very easy to test on TikTok, very easy to test on Instagram shorts or YouTube shorts and Instagram reels. Just build an audience and play around with that. You will save so much time ahead. Like it took me two year, one to two years to get to product market fit. I could have been product market fit on day one if I just did that first and build an audience and understand what I want to build. It would have been much easier because you because how you get to product market fit is by talking to customers. And you kind of, once you talk with enough customers, you navigate your, they navigate you towards you actually to where you need to go. Well, if you just created a newsletter, created a Twitter account, created a TikTok account, and you just build that audience, much better. That should be the envy. Like then you build, and you have you build right after it, you put a beta list, a landing page beta list for your audience that go subscribe. When you launch, you are truly MVP because it's based off the ideas that you validate with that customer and you know that it truly will work. And whatever you put in MVP, it could look like trash. It doesn't matter because you confirm the idea with your audience. They're excited. You get comments, you get, you get feedback on this is what they want. When you say, I built this for you, I'm going to give it to you for free. I'm not even going to charge you they're going to use it. That's what I would do differently. That's why I would recommend for other folks to do. Well, I, I always like to say SaaS is not a business of building software. It's business of selling software. So right. like if, if you just build the software, you're in business of software <laughs> development, not in SaaS necessarily. Right. <laughs> so it's, we need to sell things first and then we need to build them. I, I cannot emphasize this enough and, and you just laid it down perfectly in terms of creating a landing page, maybe a wait list, so that the moment you launch, you already have you know ten emails for leads to try it out. So it's it's much easier than having these things like okay, what am I doing with this now? And they're starting right. from scratch. It's almost like you know starting the the car from the fourth gear. Like in the right. like you built your MVP, like yeah, let's go. Just well, why <laughs> am I doing it so slowly? You know, why it takes me so much time? Well, once you build something, it makes it really hard to say maybe I built the wrong thing. Like what <laughs> what founder says says that on month one. 
No one, well, because you believe in it. So it sucks. You have to subscribe to it. I know you're technical yourself. And I always, when I consult my like non-technical founders I work with, I always say it should be somewhere in 30 to 60 day time frame, Because usually if it's less than 30, sometimes it's a bit unrealistic, especially if you do the research, the implementation, the marketing. But if it's over 60, for me, it's usually an indicator that we can probably trim some things, like trim the fat a little bit to make it more viable because more minimum. Yes, mm-hmm. we're building MVP. Let's say, what do you think should be the approach for non-technical founders? Let's say I have a really deep knowledge of my industry, maybe I'm in commerce and real estate. I am technical in the sense that I understand technology. I even understand the basics of AI, like how to leverage like ChatGPT, for example, how to do basic integrations, but I'm just not a developer. I just cannot come up with something. And I think maybe even if I go no code myself, there's still some kind of learning curve I need to do. What do you think are the options here to to, choose to launch an MVP first? So I think this is a really good question because if you asked me this four years ago, I would have gave a different answer. Today, there are founders listening to this podcast who would be open to partner with other companies. Maybe their current company isn't working. Maybe right now they're a founder on title, but they haven't really launched anything themselves yet or are hesitant about finishing, uh, you know, going through that chasm. Maybe they're looking to pivot. There's a lot of streamers and Twitter accounts that are makers or part of the indie community. All of them are coders or have a blend between no code and code capabilities. If you're not, if you're a non-technical founder right now and you're looking to partner up, just search any maker, indie hacker, and just reach out. You can reach out to a hundred of those technical folks and say, are you looking Here's my idea. Here's my pitch. Here is my, here's what, I, here's what I want to change. Here's my mission statement. Would you be interested in, in joining me? I saw what you did. I see the perform. I see that the products you've created, they're amazing. I've checked out your GitHub profile. Everything checks out. I just want to know if you're interested. You do a hundred of those, you'll find at least 10, 15 candidates. Go filter from there and you'll find your, you'll find one that will work. Okay. I'm really curious to know, you said like four years ago, you would probably give a different answer. What do you yeah. think changed in your understanding of this of this process? Well, the four-year answer ago would have been like, go on Reddit, go on like IndieHackers.com. Not even IndieHackers mm-hmm. actually. Just go on Reddit, go on friends and family, find, find software engineers who are looking to build a startup, like kind of a very traditional route. That route today is not the right mindset to build a company. Think about it. If you're going to partner with someone technical, you have to go through an emotional roller roller coaster with with no end in sight. You don't have no idea when it ends. So that subscription is very scary. And in the very beginning, you can convince a developer to do it, no problem. But how do you get past month six? How do you get past month seven? The developer came from in, an institutional realm, a structured realm, where maybe in you know like the four year old way would have been they came from a W two job. They came from getting a, a paycheck every two weeks. You're at month seven, your vision, what you told them didn't work out. What do you think they're going to be thinking of? And once you have that mindset and you have it for so long, it's just going to deteriorate any progress for that company. So my answer today with kind of look for people already doing it now, you know, they have a hustle. You know, they're looking to make a deal. You know, they're, they're hungry to be an entrepreneur and you know, they're technical because they made all these products. What better source of people are existing founders? Not all, most founders are going to be like, no, I'm working on my own thing. But you know what? Sometimes you don't, they're not ready to disclose it yet, but they might be closing shop. They might just have it on the back burner. They're looking to do other things. 
that happens all the time. You non-technical founders can use that well and, and get some technical expertise with with a proven track record of execution, which is the most important piece. One important question here was just on the tip of my tongue. One thing we talked about off the air a little bit is about fundraising. You mentioned that you successfully fundraised for your previous startups before, and that this one, the chipbot, started off as fully bootstrapped, which is which I applaud, yeah. of course. It, it means being super resourceful and getting achieving more while having really limited resources of your own. When it comes to getting funding, I, I know you said you're planning sometime in the future to take that route as well. What what's your take on how do you choose between getting fully bootstrapped in the beginning? or going for external capital? What kind of things going through your mind, like from your experience? So bootstrap is tough in a way where when you do need capital and that's the only thing stopping you, it puts you in a very interesting position because you either, you have to find capital somewhere and it makes you, it forces you to be creative. That ability to be creative is extremely hard, but you pull it off you start to actually reuse those same skill sets to do bigger deals and bigger ambitions with the company. Now that's not for everyone. That that's a you're say you're say you're in that kind of despair, you're in that down piece of your company and you're kind of not emotionally all there. And to say you need to come up with a creative solution and maybe gamble even more, that's tough. That's a tough spot. So bootstrapping isn't for everyone. And if you are going to bootstrap SaaS, you really got to be kind of creative or have some type of way to reach alternative funds. Like for me, like one, one thing I did in 2019 was it may have been 2020 or 2019. I think I put like $5,000 into Bitcoin and I got lucky with one of those Elon Musk tweets and like things pop like 33% and I just took it out that same day. I'm like, all right, that's good enough. Here's Coinbase, take the fees. I can use that. I spend that for marketing. Not saying you should do that, but like there was some times where, and that wasn't like 5,000 wasn't like everything. It was just like, here, I got some extra capital to play around with. Let's just see. Sometimes you got to be creative with your capital and, and risk a few things. The difference between whether you should bootstrap or not, you just have to know you should be prepared to be creative when you do bootstrap. If you want to raise, do the structured way. It's, it's, there's literally two paths. You can do friends, family, angel, VC, go straight to VC if you're well-connected or go straight to angels. Again, if you're well well connected, but it requires less due diligence. Those are like the three traditional routes. And there are there are doc, there are sub stacks and tweets that describe each one of those processes very well. They're all accurate. Y Combinator does a really good job if you want to go the friends family angel VC route. They do it really well. I, th I think I think just follow the structure. Don't try to be create. Don't try to do crazy things there unless you're so well connected. You can just uh, you and you have a really good track record. You can just kind of ask your network and 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 they'll invest in you. Because I'm, I'm familiar with one story in particular. I was actually helping a person to build an MVP and it was their first SaaS journey. They, they were, we actually had them on the podcast before. They basically had this idea of e-commerce research tool and he was bootstrapping. I think he really found the product market fit probably after seven to eight months. So you, you can kind of imagine just probably just taking in your own shoes as well. And he wasn't technical. So he had to pay for salaries for his like developers. So you might mm -hmm. imagine every every month he needs to write a check. When do we find a product market fit? Like marketing is not out there yet. You know, acquiring customers is more expensive than the customers are providing. So I, I can totally totally resonate with what you said about it being like really tough and really requiring some mental toughness, not necessarily being you know, bulky, but it's more about how how much are you willing to wake up every morning and trying to make it work when you don't you're not supposed to believe in this. 
but you still do every time and you put your 100% to it. One thing I'm always curious is you also mentioned that you personally are not, let's say, the most raving fan of, of the venture capital route. What do you think are the arguments, let's say, against going VC route from, from your perspective? Let's, let's define startup. There's a difference between startup and having a company, being a business owner. If you're doing a startup in the eyes of institution, traditional venture capitalists for, for early stage, it means that you are believe they're believing in the team and it's all about going from team to exit or team to 1 billion team to one to, to a very high number as fast as possible that means whatever your mission whatever your product idea whatever your research whatever you research and whatever you kind of for the reasons why you became an entrepreneur you have to be willing to forfeit that in exchange for capital if a venture, if you're going for the VC route and you get accepted in that in that course, it actually means you are strapped with a jetpack on you and is a very high chance it's going to explode. Very, very high chance. So now you get to go extremely fast. You have a 99% chance of exploding because from the VC's end, they're look, they they do these bets all the time. They're looking for one out of a hundred. You are supposed to explode from the purse from the founder's perspective. That's a really hard scenario to be in. Because now, if it doesn't work, if you're, what you pitch doesn't work after month five, month six, you don't get the option like a bootstrapper does. You don't get to say, let's figure it out. You actually have to pivot, maybe dissolve the company and return some of the investment, maybe go all in on a last-ditch effort, you have, or try to raise more money in a, situa- in, a, in a situation where you have even less leverage than before you got that first round or whatever the previous round was. That's a tough, that's a tough spot to be in. It's a different kind of mental thinking, but it also means you have to forfeit part of your dream for another dream. And I think that's a really hard tug of war. And you have, and now you have, you have, you have business family, you have investors, you have employees because you use that money to hire, help scale. You have potentially vendors that you built relationships because of all the connections. And you have potentially a pipeline that's still active, but not enough to sustain the company. You have a business family. You can't let that family down. And you really have to kind of pivot different ideas if you want to make that money work. I think that whole idea of exploding spontaneously is just not my way of kind of running businesses. I, I was actually talking to one of the Woodstart founders on the podcast, and they basically mentioned that they had an opportunity to raise. Uh, on the like pre-seed and almost seed stage, but they declined. What when they got profitable, they explained that that's that's what they reach peace of mind because what that means is there is no timer, there is no clock, mm-hmm. meaning that you can take as much as you want to do the right thing to scale it, and as long as you're profitable and you don't have any investors, there is no pressure outside on doing anything that's against what you want to do in a way that you can take you know three months, six months compared to. If you, invest, if you have investment, you also have goals. For example, for this quarter, we need to reach this or there'll be some tough conversations to have. So I think, I think right. those are just two t- totally different games. Both have their edges. And I think it's just for different personalities. It's default alive, right? So a lot of people who are trying to raise, these days at least, they're default dead. Like no matter what they, if they stop working, their company dies. That situation, yeah, you can raise money, but you're always in a disadvantaged position. It's really hard to make to make to make moves. It doesn't mean it's wrong either. Right? A lot of company, a lot of great companies came out of that model. A lot of big companies too. So there's a reason why VCs put their money into there. But again, it's it's what you want to do. For me, 
focus in boring tech and I make a lot of money doing it. Uh, that's what that's my focus. Boring tech. G- gotta make sure Elon Musk didn't tra- trademark that because that's important. <laughs> speaking about your journey, speaking about you learning and like becoming a better entrepreneur, what do you think are the resources that inspired you and shaped you into entrepreneur you are today? Maybe there are some books you can recommend, maybe some inspirational speakers, some communities. What are the resources you found the most, uh, let's say, uh, transformational for you in the past couple of years? Yeah. So one unique thing about me is before I did startups, I did a lot of consulting for small businesses. And along the way, I made a lot of relationships with these business owners. Some of them making pretty good money. You typically on average, probably somewhere between one and 10 million. Most of them are in that kind of three to seven range. And I learned a lot from them. They always respected me because I was a tech guy. No one they knew was tech. So it was like anything I said was kind of the law in that realm. But vice versa, I could ask them questions about like, uh, how do you run this? Like how, what makes kind of the questions you're asking me, but I would ask them, but not in an interview style. I just kind of pick at them every time I saw them. I just kind of built this knowledge on what makes a great company, uh, what makes a, what makes a bad company. And I just kind of built this kind of pattern recognition of like, okay, these are good traits and these are bad traits. Here is what I've seen most successful in the small business realm. Here is what typically I don't see, which means I'm just going to avoid it for now. That's kind of the knowledge I built, at least from like business experience pre, you know, before I did startups and stuff. Before, I think another valuable piece in, in information was um, there is a book. Let's see. Uh, oh, here we go. This is a, this is a crazy book. So I always have on the top. I've read this like three times now. This has nothing to do with startups. This is um, uh, New Market Wizards. It's a trading book, but it's a Q&A book. And a lot of the people in this book are either traders or entrepreneurs. They used to be former traders and they became entrepreneurs. And the mental model of what they go through is exactly the same as business. And the decisions they make between trades and deals and swaps are exactly the same that you make in day-to-day business decisions. And the level of risk tolerance is really, that guy, interviewer, his name was Jack uh, Schweiger. The interviewer did a really good job of understanding exactly where they felt the most despair and the most happiest. And using those as pinpoints to say, why were you here? What decisions made you hit here? And what decisions made you hit here? And I, in that experience, there's like maybe 15, 20 different interviews in that book. That experience helped me shape uh, the mental capacity that you would need to be kind of a, a leader of a company, but more importantly, to make a product that people care about. Even though this book has nothing to do with the product, the, the determination to get it where their goals were was the same that I needed to take to get to where my market or my customers can see my product and benefit them. The, the last thing you'd be surprised here is poker. I play a lot of poker. And uh, you may have heard this from other folks already. Poker is a really great way of practicing, casting your way your emotions temporarily. You shouldn't cast your emotions all the time because I believe you need fear to have courage. But there's a lot of times where you need to have no emotion to make a very hard decision. One, one thing you dropped here, I want to others to pick it up. You need to have fear in order to have courage. I think that's that's a really good that's a really good say, way to say this. I also noticed that a lot of times things that are super beneficial to your mindset and business might not necessarily come for business owners. Just like you said, new new market wizards. There is a book that's called The Art of War. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but yeah, I'm familiar with it. I read it when I was a kid. 
yeah, it's it's ancient, but you can still pick up some of the philosophies on how to attack the competition, how how do you position yourself, and but it has nothing to do with business really. But those things, I think, we might call them fundamental, probably, in terms of like how do you how do you think as a person who, who wants to impact others, basically. Hundred percent agree. I grew up playing StarCraft, and uh, that was one of the books I read to get better at StarCraft. Yeah, it one thousand percent shaped the way I how I think today. That kind of strategic thinking, so important, so important. As for playing poker, I'll, I'll probably need to send you some links after after an episode. I've got some communities who who do that. You you might love it. You might love it. <laughs> Speaking, let's say one thing you love to ask on Sas and Cyrus podcast is, what do you think should be like the biggest idea? we the society should take from this episode let's say they they heard nothing but this one big idea they can take away home and apply it in one or two sentences what would be like the best the best thing they could learn from us today sell on video it's the number one reason why people buy our product it's the number one reason why people who buy our product are getting more sales they are getting on camera and selling they're doing exactly what you see people on shark tank doing pitching their business and selling, whether it's raising money, whether it's trying to convince a customer, or maybe it's trying to keep a customer. Get on video. Stop trying to hire someone to do it for you. Don't use those avatars. Don't keep your camera off. Don't like be professional about it, but also be authentic. Just get on camera and sell. That's it. doesn't matter if you're MVP or you're already making 10 million. No, every, every business owner should be on, on camera and, and talk to their customers. No, that, that's, a, that's really great advice here. I think it also builds your personal brand when you do a lot of videos because people buy from people. Like they don't right. really buy from robots. And the more you feel a personal connection, because I think the moment like we make decisions on purchases really, can we trust the person we're buying from? I think that's what comes like internally. We don't ask it out loud, but it's like, am I trusting this person? The moment the trust is established, the transaction just, just takes place. So I think selling video is kind of, you know, accelerating that trust. It's a good contrarian play too. Like how many businesses have you seen in the past month that are like, we're this chat GPT AI bot or we're this chat GPT AI software. Look, customers aren't stupid. They're going to be like, I tried it. It didn't work. Eventually they're going to be like, I just want something where I can talk to a person. And you hear that, that phrase happen more and more. So I say, don't go, don't hide behind live chat. You won't beat your competitors. Don't hide behind email. You won't beat competitors. Be on video, be authentic, be live if you can. Speaking of being on on video, I know we talked a little bit of the air that you actually have some some promo code or some coupon for okay. uh, for uh, for Chipbot. <laughs> yeah, it's reminding me. I was about to say it earlier. Uh, yeah, so if you use video win sales, no space. Uh, you can type it wrong; it'll still catch it. You get fifty percent off any plan on Chipbot, and that's for the first month. So that's video wins sales. Awesome. We'll put that in the description as well, so we can just copy paste it. What do you think would be the best resources to connect with you? Maybe it's some SaaS founders seeking guidance. Maybe it's someone from the investment world, someone who could benefit from you or benefit you. What are the best places to reach out? We'll be putting links in the description, but I just want to make sure that we're putting the right ones. Yeah. So the number one place to reach out to me is getchipbot.com. I actually run support along with my team. So you will catch me or they'll, tell, they'll forward me directly. The second best way is Twitter. You can reach my personal Twitter, which is twitter.com slash Matt underscore low. There is, and I think a third one, you could go to my personal email or my, not my personal email, my personal website, which is mattlow.io. We'll, we'll be putting those in the description of the episode, so you can 
check them out and connect with Matt if you have something to, to benefit to him. To, to wrap up our conversation, what do you think should be the concluding notes for our, for our episode today? What, what kind of note do you want to finish on? It's a good question. I really think about it. I think based off everything we're saying, aside from video sales, don't give up. I think the theme that we've kind of discussed is kind of the MVP and the emotion that goes into it. And even you saying it's, it's normal to have it. Just don't give up and don't listen to anyone. I mean, I understand you're listening to this podcast, but if there's anything you can listen one here, one thing here is just don't give a shit about what anyone else says. Just do your thing because you might be 10, 20, 30 years down the road and you might regret not going the whole way. Go all in, bust out, and if you bust out, so be it. Matt Lowe, everyone. Matt, I thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with me today. Thanks for inviting. Appreciate it, Vlad. Sass and Cyrus, we'll see you in the next episodes.